Good morning. If you're visiting, welcome to our church. Today we celebrate communion, so we have a little bit of a longer service, but I try to make a point of preaching shorter as well to compensate. Our text for this morning is 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22. The title of our study this morning is Do Not Quench the Spirit. And the Word of God reads, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And that is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray again. Father, we commit ourselves to you in the reading and in the exposition of your word. May Christ be exalted. May our minds and our souls be edified. May you be honored. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I guess, and it's a guess, I don't know that for a fact, that the text I read to you is one of the most misquoted, misunderstood, misrepresented passages in Scripture. Do not quench the Spirit. A lot of people, or maybe many, take it as a call for fervor, for passion, for devotion, for stamina, and for serving the Lord. Not quenching the spirit. A call to not be worldly. A call to abstain from sin. And to honor the Lord fervently, passionately. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you. That passage has nothing to do with what I said. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Examine everything. Oh, that means you have to be open-minded and absorb everything. Every truth is God's truth. It doesn't matter the philosophy. It doesn't matter the religion. It doesn't matter the precedence. It's God's truth. Absorb it. Take it as valid as the Bible. I'm sorry to disappoint you. That doesn't mean that either. It is all one commandment. It is exactly the same instruction Paul, as a rabbi, is just using parallelism to say the same thing with different expressions to make his point across. So do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Examine all things. Cling to what is good. And do not and, and abstain from every form of evil. It's all one commandment. Given in a specific context to a specific culture. And I tell you first what it does not mean because Paul could not contradict himself. He's writing to a Greek culture. And he's writing to a relatively newly founded church in the year 49 to 51 AD. Meaning the Christian church had very 
short time in development. This is barely 16 to 19 years after Jesus' resurrection. The canon of scripture, the New Testament, had not been completed. The faith once and for all given to the saints of which Jude speaks about and calls us to contend ardently and fervently for that faith had not been given yet. And in that context, where there were itinerant and also resident prophets in the churches to communicate God's will and God's message and the gospel in light of the Old Testament and in light of new revelation, Paul tells the church, do not despise prophetic utterances, do not quench the spirit, examine all things, cling to what is good. That passage, and I'm not going to do that, should be read along with 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. And how Paul regulates the use of prophecy and the ministry of prophets and the discerning of prophecies in the context of the New Testament church. Let me tell you something worse. The language in those verses is not original from Scripture. Paul is quoting pagan writers. And he's addressing the Thessalonians with language they knew from their previous religious experiences, even in paganism. He's not quoting the Old Testament, because perhaps contrary to the Corinthians, who had many Jews in the synagogues or synagogues where they gathered, because the church started in synagogues, he could not appeal to the Old Testament with this recently found church. He appealed to them with language they knew from pagan writers. I know it sounds weird. Let us explain the text. And that's the first point. My sermon has only two points. The explanation of the text and some exhortations from the text. The explanation already gave you a hint of it. The canon is not closed. This is a relatively early letter in the New Testament. The dynamics of New Testament worship when 1 Thessalonians is written is not the dynamics we see today. Victor, during the announcement, said, come to Sunday school. We have interactive conversations. You know that's the way that things happened in churches back in the day? Synagogues were not a place where you would sing and then have a guy lecturing from a podium. It was more conversational. Four men was enough to form a synagogue. Mega churches was an unknown thing until centuries later in the Christian world. Synagogues, church gatherings were small groups of people where there was a lot of interaction. And in that dynamic, there were prophets who would rise and say, Thus says the Lord, I have the message, or a message from the Holy Spirit. And they would provide new revelation to that gathered assembly that didn't have a New Testament to follow. Some of them could have some copies, perhaps of the Torah, perhaps some copies of other books of the Old Testament. But things were not in those days as we have them 2,000 years later. And in that setting, Paul gives this exhortation intertwined with the reality of itinerant or present prophets 
in the lives of the congregations. But you know where there are true prophets, <laughs> what should we expect to find? False prophets. It's everywhere in scripture. The good man sows or, or plants his field, the enemy comes behind to plant tares. We know that. Paul even speaks of it openly. In 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, he warns the Corinthians, if Satan himself disguises as an angel of light, then we should be surprised if his servants, Satan's ministers, disguise or appear themselves as ministers of righteousness. So this is as old as dirt. Where there is truth, the devil will plant falsehood. In that setting, Paul says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Examine all things. Cling to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Are we together so far? Let me give you this quote from Pillar New, New Testament series of commentaries. It says, the last group of imperatives Paul delivers includes five exhortations that concern the use and control of prophecy within the church. Some people in the congregation were prohibiting prophecy. The apostle counters this tendency by saying that although this manifestation of the Spirit should be regulated, we have 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 for that, Prophecy should not be banned from the meetings of the assembly. So do not quench the spirit and do not despise prophetic utterances or prophecies are one and the same commandment. Do not quench the prophesying in the church. Now, this language was used by Plutarch. Plutarch was the priest of Apollos. Adelphi. Paul is quoting the priest of a false god who was instructing the people around him to not despise the prophecies of the priestess. Say, why does Paul quote that? Because his audience would understand exactly what he meant. So don't be afraid. To use the language of the streets to make a point, provided you're using it right. Why did Plutarch say that? Because the Epicureans were, uh, uh, and Cicero, the famous orator, were removing faith from the people in their pagan goddess. And because of that, people were deserting the place of assembly of the false goddess, and Plutarch writes to them, stirring them up, do not despise or reject prophecies. Do not quench the prophetic utterances of the priestess, because she had stopped doing that. Now, that was part and parcel of the old world. Wherever you traveled, if you're getting contact before the European Western civilization we're accustomed to, you will realize that prophets and prophecies was part and parcel of their religion. It doesn't matter what religion they followed. I'm not saying those prophets were sent by God, 
I'm not saying those prophets were also servants of Yahweh. What I'm saying is that was part and parcel of their culture. So Paul is using what they knew to tell them, now that you are worshiping the true and living God, now that you are Christians, now that you have received the Spirit of God, do not quench the Spirit by stopping the prophesying in your synagogues. Because there is true prophecy. What happened is that they had swinged the pendulum too hard. And now in the Thessalonian church, they were stopping, curtailing, forbidding, prophesying. Little note about contextualization. Some of you have heard that word. What is contextualization? Well, it's adapting the gospel to the context of our culture. No. It is using the culture to convey the same gospel. And here's Paul using the reality of who he is talking to to give him a commandment related to the gospel. He's not changing the message, but he's not quoting Isaiah. They didn't know who Isaiah was. The, the Jewish religion was contained in a very small portion of land in the Middle East with a minority of people. When you see that is when you realize what God said to Moses. I'm not choosing you because you're the greatest of all the people. I'm not choosing you because you're the most numerous. I'm choosing you because you're the smallest of all the nations. And in that very little, tiny, small nation, Paul is giving his word and his revelation and conveying his plan of redemption for mankind. But this is not known to others. Or it was known to very few. And Paul speaks to them with a language they knew. Now, the Thessalonians had to deal with converting from paganism. The Thessalonians had to deal with false prophets that were circulating in the churches. They became antagonistic to prophecy. Because remember that in this letter and in the next one, Paul has to clarify that some people were prophesying false things in the name of the Lord regarding the coming of the Lord and the doctrine of the last things. And Paul says, don't be misled by those false prophets. So you have a little synagogue converted into a church with people that have fled paganism fled the false prophets of paganism, dealing with the false prophets within Christendom, and now they're saying, no prophecy in this church. Get the context? It is in that setting that Paul tells them, no, do not quench the spirit. The remedy to false prophecy, the remedy to false teaching, is not stopping it altogether, but exercising discernment that's why he tells them but examine all things and cling to what is good you hear the prophet talking examine what he's saying and once you examine what he's saying or she is saying philip had daughters who were prophetesses then you cling to that which is good what is the test for discernment well, the test for discernment, Paul says, test everything. 
hold fast or cling to what is good. We test the contents of the prophecy. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11 speaks of that. Paul even had to tell the Corinthians who brought their... I'm going to use a modern word so that you get the context, but of course in the days of the Corinthians it didn't have the connotation of today, but the Corinthians brought their charismania from their heathen religions. It's not a new thing. What their, their tongue speaking, their prophesying, all of these things Paul has to regulate is because they knew them in heathenism or in pagan religions. And Paul has to regulate them in the context they knew. Now, Paul had to tell the Corinthians, no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus anathema or accursed. It's the same instruction. Here what is being said, hear what is being prophesied, and then you hold on to what is good, what is biblical, what is gospel-like. There's another quote in which it says, the, this exhortation, you have it there, yes, is quite similar, this is amazing, to an inscription from Sardis that calls the guardians of the temple of Zeus to keep themselves apart from other mysteries. Paul is quoting the heathen, just as he did in Athens, when he was preaching the gospel, quoting their poets. In the same way, Christians should keep away from any kind of inspired revelation that the community deems to originate from a source other than the Holy Spirit. The church should not treat true prophecies lightly, nor should they adhere to revelations that are patently false. The text is not teaching syncretism. Paul is not saying, take everything you hear, it's okay, doesn't matter where it comes from, just take what is good. No. What he's saying is, those prophets who rise in your midst, who say they are speaking in the name of the Lord, listen to what they are saying, if it is biblical, Take it. It is in the name of the Lord. When God speaks, it is not against his revealed will in Scripture. Paul is saying, check your source. Even in the days of Isaiah, 700 plus years before Christ, there were many prophets talking. And some of them were false prophets. And what did Paul say? Isaiah 8.20 to the law, and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, what word? The word of the law and the testimony. The word of God. What they had revealed in their scriptures. If they don't speak according to that, it's because it has, they have no dawn. They haven't woken up from their sleep. They are still dead. They are false prophets. Same principle. 1 Corinthians 14, 16. Paul told the Corinthians, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Any environment where there is confusion, where there is this whatever form of worship that is not peaceful, orderly, and unto edification, Paul says that's not, it's not coming from God. God's revelation 
has to be according to the scriptures. Because God is not man that he may change. He is immutable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not going to tell me one thing today. He said something to Paul, then something to Peter, and then, of course, something to me. And it's all different. It doesn't work that way. The radical nature of Galatians 1 must always be incorporated into our thinking. Paul said, even if an angel from heaven, he didn't save a demon. That, I know it's a hyperbole. See, that cannot happen. I know it cannot happen. But, but it is, Paul is using an hyperbole, an extreme exaggeration, to make his point. If an angel decides to leave heaven and come and preach a different gospel to the one you've heard, that angel is accursed. That simple. There's no new gospel. There's no new nuance. There's no new doctrine. There's one and the same faith given to the saints forever. Of course, Paul didn't know that because when he said that, Jude had not written what he wrote. I understand that. But you get the point. Now, the second test is besides the content of the prophecy, we have to examine the character of the prophet. He told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14, 34, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Oh, I'm a prophet of God. God speaks to me. But your life doesn't seem to jive with your supposed walk with the Lord. Then I have news for you. You may say whatever you want. You may have heard whatever you want. You may have seen whatever you want. I don't take it. Because the character of the prophet doesn't jive with the prophecy. Jesus said, speaking of false prophets, you shall know them by their fruits. Well, but I don't judge. Well, Jesus says, yes, judge. Make sure from what tree are you reaping and harvesting fruits. Because the good tree does not produce a bad fruit and vice versa. So, yes. And I, I will take being accused of preaching hyper-grace as I have been... Any day of the week actually makes me very proud. When somebody thinks, oh, Edwin has really gone heretic. He preaches hyper-grace. He says that it's all grace, grace, and no law. Why? Thank you for putting me in a category that I don't belong. It's the category of Paul and other great preachers. It really honors me. Now, let me say something. The grace I preach, which is grace, and grace alone, and some of you are visiting, some of you I don't know. Let me get it straight for you. You don't start by grace and then get perfected by works. I believed that for decades. And I didn't know I believed it. That's the worst part. I thought I was preaching the gospel. But day by day, I believed that I really had to get myself ready and prepared. No. No, you don't. This is all of grace. Some sisters were asking me this morning, How do I tell a person who believes salvation is lost? How do I speak to them? She says, Just read them Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You're saved by grace, through faith. This is not of you, not of works, so that no one should boast. You cannot lose what, you, what is not even yours. God gave it to you. It's grace. And on what works? The works of Jesus. Jesus lived in our place. Jesus died in our place. Like the theological, confessional language, passive obedience, active obedience. It's all on Jesus accounted to us. Imputed righteousness, a forensic term. End of the story. And I believe that and I'll die on that hill. But you don't know what I did this week. I don't care. You don't know what I did either. 
Salvation is by grace. And you don't fix it. You don't perfect it. You don't perfect it by your works. You don't perfect it by Sabbath keeping. You don't perfect it by confessions, by theology, by nothing. It's all of grace. Now, the grace I'm talking about, according to Titus 2, 11 and 12, is this kind of grace. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all men. And it teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It's the same grace. It's no change. That grace teaches us to change. The change doesn't save us. The change doesn't make us more acceptable with God. Christ perfectly makes us acceptable. But if we have received that, Yes, we are taught to resign on godliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, godly, uprightly before God in this present age. Oh, but I don't understand it. Well, I'm just reading you the Bible. I, I don't have anything else to add to that. Now, that's the text explained. That's it. I don't have anything, say, anything else to add about the text. But I would like to give some exhortation from the text. Hopefully more briefly. And my exhortations from the text, which has its context and its history, of course, touches onto that ever-elusive balance between cessationism and continuism. Can't escape bringing the subject when you read a passage like that and see it in its context. There's a lot of misinterpretation, malrepresentation, caricaturization, of both positions because each side goes to the extremes, right? If I'm a cessationist, I'm this cold, formal, angry, sour Calvinist that doesn't even pray. And if I'm a continuist, I'm this crazy, schizophrenic, I don't know, fruitcake that is just all over the place, seeing visions and speaking in tongues. Well, those are extremes and caricaturizations, and, and I'm not going to solve that. I'm not going to solve the issue or the problem. Greater and better minds than mine have debated it, and if you watch any of those debates, nobody changes position, right? So I'm not planning to do anything about it this morning. Not me. Now, let me at least tell you some of the dangers of each side. Because the continuist runs the risk of that emotional, wobbly, changing instability of being a continuist. In the language of Ephesians 4.14, when you're just waiting to see where the voice of God is going to lead me, or where this voice in my heart is going to take me, this may happen to you, Ephesians 4.14. You become like children tossed to and fro, carried away by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, in craftiness after the wilds of air. That's a danger. If before you move, you need to hear the voice of God or see where He leads you in Scripture, and you know the old joke, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just open the pages of the Bible and see where it lands me, right? So, okay, Judas went and hanged himself. Oops. No, not, not that. Um, 
Let me open another text. You go and do the same. No, no, that. Let me open another text. What you're going to do, do it quickly. Right? You don't want to go there. Okay. Be careful. The cessationist runs the risk of being cold, dry, cocky, materialistic, rational in his faith or her faith. And their approach of walking to God is very normative. I've been there, done that. Actually, it's one of my problems because I'm, I'm also an engineer and my mind is very square and has to follow an order and has to follow logic. And that's a danger of the cessationist. Let me give you a personal story because I am a cessationist. Haven't changed. Nobody has convinced me to the, to the, to the contrary and I've tried. I've gone to conferences to be taught. But when I hear, it doesn't hold water. For me, if it holds for you, that's great. I respect that. But I had this experience. Some of you are aware of what I'm talking about. About 10 years ago, worst affliction I remember in my life. Horrible affliction. Days eating very little. Days not sleeping. Third or fourth day into this horrendous affliction, I finally fall asleep. But please get the context. I'm not sleeping. I'm not eating. I am under duress. I'm operated out of my feet. I could not even walk well. And I dream that I am in hell. And I wake up screaming. My wife tells me, you were speaking in tongues. Imagine me speaking in tongues. I'll tell you what I was speaking. After three, four, five days, I don't remember exactly how many, not eating, after about similar amount of days, perhaps sleeping two or three hours total, I dreamt I went to hell. And when I woke up, I was screaming, Jesus, the son of David, have mercy on me, the, word of, the words of Bartimaeus, the blind man. And I don't know why I was screaming them in Greek and in French. Now, I don't speak Greek. I just have read it for so many years studying sermons and I had a teacher who taught me how to pronounce it but I don't think he knew how to pronounce it because he was a gringo and gringos do not know how to pronounce Greek to be honest but and then I studied some French in high school and when I go to France or other places people think I speak French but I, only God and I know that I don't speak any French however that evening or that night I was shouting full voice, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And my wife thought I was speaking in tongues. I have an explanation, but I bet you that if I were Pentecostal, I would run with that testimony, I would have it on YouTube, and I would tell you I went to hell, and I even spoke in tongues. But my rational mind doesn't let me process that. My rational mind says, no, you were Four days without eating, four days without sleeping, you had a nightmare, and when you started screaming, I don't know why on earth your crazy brain went into those two languages that you know very little of. And I have my rational explanation. That is the danger people like me run into. That we find an explanation to everything. And we forget that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers 
and demons of the air. We forget that. Now, the other side has similar problems. Today, God showed me that I have to move to North Carolina. And I pack my family, pack my life, quit my job and move to North Carolina. And six months later, God showed me that I really need to move to Boston. And I do the same, and six months later, God showed me that I need to return to Miami. And you spend your life like the Israelites in the wilderness, setting up the camp, tearing down the camp. Well, that's... I'm sorry, I don't read that God in the Bible. I see God more consistent. His love is steadfast. Freddie read it this morning. said, I love you today, tomorrow I don't love you. I like you today, tomorrow I don't like you. No, it, it's steadfast. It's consistent. God doesn't change. So, yeah, those are the dangers. And Paul says, be wise. Listen to what is being said. Cling to what is good. God will not speak against his nature and be careful. And I say this to the other side. I have my problems. I know what my problems are. I, I, I think I know. Maybe I don't know them. I have greater problems. You know that because you see me from the outside. But yeah, in, in, in him we exist and we move and we are. And I have to be aware of God's presence. It is not just theological statements. I get it. But be careful on the other side. Because those who do not receive the love of the truth, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, he sends them a delusional power. You say, no, God doesn't do that. Yes, God does it. If you have any doubt, go back in your Bibles this afternoon and read 1 Kings 20. When, the, when Ahab, the king, who was this wobbly person, he married Jezebel, the daughter of the Phoenicians, but he also feared God. And he was between the wife and his fear of God. And he was always in these two sides. And finally he went to battle. And he was violating God's will. And there's this meeting in heaven. Scary to me to read. And there are demons coming and approaching God. While God is asking, who will I send to these false prophets Ahab likes to hear to deceive him. And a demon shows up and says, let me go. And God says, go. Be a deceiving spirit in his mouth. And Ahab is deceived by a demon authorized by God and dies. Because God sends a strong delusion, says Second Thessalonians. To who? To those who do not receive the love of the truth. Of the revealed truth in the gospel, in scripture. Or you want to follow things? I'll get you miracles. Or what does Matthew 7 say? That day many will say to me, Lord, Lord. In your name we prophesied. In your name we made miracles. But I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Be careful to the law and to the testimony. The gift of discernment remains. 
1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11, Paul says, this is the way it works. The prophets stand up, but there are people sitting in the pew. And after the prophet spoke, <laughs> it was checks and balances, stuff Victor likes, and, 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 and maybe Darren. Yeah, yeah, one guy writes the check, but another one registers it. One guy sells, but another one sets the price. Prophet spoke. Guess what? Then somebody from the pew stood up and said, Nope. Prophet today didn't speak from God. He was just excited and said whatever he wanted, but that message is not from God. There was the gift of discerning spirits. Right there in 1 Corinthians. Read it. Well, we don't have that gift today. I don't know. I mean, I'm cessationist. I'm sorry. But whatever we have, yeah, there are discerning people. When somebody has a financial need, guess who takes care of them? Uncle Victor. Why do you think is that? Because Uncle Victor has like about 40 years working with numbers and with people. And he will read in probably 15 minutes what Freddie and I could not read in a week about somebody trying to deceive with money. And being irresponsible with money. Lewis used to do that back in the day. Yeah, there, is, there are people who have discernment for certain areas. Others have discernment for spiritual things. Others read something or hear something and they say, hmm, I don't know. Something is missing there. Cannot put my finger on it, but let me keep reading. I believe there is discernment. Well, exercise discernment. Because ultimately... This is a call to live the truth. And the truth always, always, always carries ethical implications. Always. That's why there is a abstain from every form of evil. That is a, the capstone or the, or the ending, the, the, the closing bracket of the statement. Abstain from every form of evil. Love the expression, the external appearance, the silhouette, the figure, the form of evil. Even from that, abstain. Because some people say, well, well, I, you know, I'm not doing anything evil. I mean, it may look back to you, but that's because you're judgmental. The text says, you know what? Stay away even from the shape or the silhouette or the form of the, or the appearance of evil. Why? Because the gospel redeems us from the guilt of sin. Bless God for that. When you blow it, any great to say, Jesus, I blew it. But my hope is not even in that I don't blow it. My hope is in you. Please have mercy on me. It's great. The gospel releases us from the condemnation of sin. I know that nothing created, future, past, in the heavens, on hell, on earth, nothing will be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Yeah, but the gospel also saves us from the power of sin. I cannot say that I'm of the truth, but I still live in darkness. So yes, abstain from every form of evil, because all things may be lawful to us. And by the way, when Paul says that in 1 Corinthians, he's quoting someone also. And he's quoting a pagan also. Yeah, all things may be lawful to me, but not all things that I. All things may be lawful to me and are lawful to me, but not all things are convenient. All things are lawful to me, but I will not any of those lawful things dominate me, even if it is something neutral.
And I'm already at the 40-minute mark, but I'll say this quickly in two minutes. Finally, consider our gatherings as a church under the sound of the word. I believe we no longer have prophets. That's what I believe. I may be wrong, but I believe that that gift ceased. But when we gather under the sound of the preached word, prophecy is happening. When somebody speaks the word, and when somebody speaks somebody else's words, and when somebody speaks in the place of or on behalf of someone, and anyone who stands up and opens a text from scripture and expounds it, is speaking for the word of God, that person is exercising the gift of prophecy. And there is something real that happens when the word of God is being preached. Yes, the preaching has to be biblical and has to be Christ-centered, but the hearing has to be also biblical. See, if I come to church after partying until 4 a.m. this morning, and then I just come to see, well, I have to go to church because I don't want people calling me. I don't think you're going to profit a lot. You're going to be fighting your, your drowsiness for a long time. So there has to be preparedness. There has to be praying beforehand on the Lord's Day for those who will bring the word. Praying for ourselves as those who will hear the word. There has to be this active listening. I really want to find out what's happening. I really want to learn. I want to hear when the word is being read. When Victor was reading this morning the account of the resurrection, I could barely contain myself. It was so vivid. Now, I, can, I have read that passage so many times on my own, and probably I could quote the passage, but when we read it together as a congregation in the presence of the Holy Spirit, who according to the Bible is real and present when we gather, something is different. And then when we ruminate after hearing the word, instead of being the birds who take away the seed, you hear a sermon and you want to tell me that the stock market is doing better. Please don't tell me today. Please tell me some other day. The Yangs are doing great. Awesome. Don't tell me today. Tell me some other day. Don't be the bird that takes away the seed that may have been planted by the Spirit by bringing to me the stuff that I deal with six days a week. There has to be this element of, I want to come ready to listen as much as those who preach make every effort to come ready to speak. Why? Because we want to comply with this. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Father, bless your word. And help us to be conscious and be aware. Whatever our pre-convictions are. To be aware of the extremes of our preconditions and our beliefs. Give us more light. If we are in error with respect to these gifts. And in the meantime, give us integrity and honesty with what we believe. But help us to cling to your word. Cling to Christ. Examine what we hear with discerning ears like the Bereans. And cling to that which is good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.